welcome to See Things Differently, a podcast from Remix Summits in collaboration with our series partner, the UK Government and Time Out. I'm your host, Peter Tullen, and your guide to the future of the creative economy. This podcast is for creatives who want to be creative entrepreneurs. Over the last few years, thousands of delegates to Remix events have gathered in leading creative cities such as London, New York, Sydney and Istanbul to hear from the visionaries behind emerging creative powerhouses such as Meow Wolf, Punchdrunk, Secret Cinema and Team Lab, alongside established names such as Glastonbury, Burning Man and MoMA. I believe we are in the age of the creator. And through See Things Differently, we have another platform to share the stories of the pioneers developing the creative content, products and experiences that are reshaping the economy. I also believe creative entrepreneurs could offer some of the answers to how we can build back better from the global pandemic. Finally, if you like what you hear, there are literally hundreds more talks from Remix events around the globe at remixsummits.com. And better still, many of them are free. So what's not to like? In this episode, we will hear the incredible story behind the creation of the Eden Project by its co-founder, Sir Tim Schmidt. I remember walking into what was once a disused clay pit to see the Eden Project for the first time. And it's truly an unforgettable sight. It's a globally iconic piece of architecture that is even featured in a James Bond movie. Many things have been called the eighth wonder of the world, and Eden stakes a claim for me. After my visit, I subsequently read Tim's book, The Eden Project, from cover to cover, which documents the origin story in detail. If you don't have time for that, however, he condenses this story for us in a 40-minute talk he gave at Remix London a few years back. We decided to pull it from the archives at this time as part of a series of talks and interviews that we are sharing which connect to the incredibly important global conversation that is happening at the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. The mission of Eden is to help protect the environment and they want to do this by creating a movement that builds relationships between people and the natural world to demonstrate the power of working together for the benefit of all living things. Prior to his Eden adventure, Tim spent 10 years in a totally different industry, music, as a composer and producer in both rock and opera before moving to Cornwall, where he discovered and then restored the Lost Gardens of Heligan, which is a whole other story in itself. The Eden Project began as a dream in 1995 and finally opened its doors to the public in the year 2000. More than 19 million people have visited so far, and it's contributed over £1.9 billion into the Cornish economy. Tim is one of those infectious speakers who commands a room from the moment he begins speaking until he stops. So this one is a real treat that I'm excited to share with all of you. Hello, everybody. I never know what I'm going to say until I come out onto the stage, so it's a bit of a crest run for all of us. Um, so I want to just tell you, uh, just while I get sort of the sense of the mood of the audience, I want to tell you about the most extraordinary day I had last year. I was, um, I walked into a dark room a bit like this and someone told me that a very beautiful woman was about to come on stage. And I didn't see her and I didn't see her and then this extraordinary violin playing started. And the first time I really started to think about it was as the whole room went all these different colours. It was hypnotic, these different colours. 
And she then started to talk as she was playing Paganini, which is rather unusual. And she said, you are seeing my world. My husband is an electronics engineer, and I suffer uh, the fact that I see music in colors. And the extraordinary thing was, after she finished, that wasn't the extraordinary thing. The thing was in the bar afterwards, all these people who were saying to each other, I'm like that, I thought I was unique. And I found it really exciting to think of all these people who were disparate then coming together and realizing they had something in common. Immediately after that, I drove into the Joshua Tree Desert and I came to, it was very, very hot, and I came to a, a, a kind of shack in the middle of nowhere which said minerals for sale. And I actually, I was so hot because um, we had an open top car that I thought I'd get a sort of drink inside and I went in. I was also attracted by the advert on the front which said coprolites for sale. Now, for those of you who don't know what a coprolite is, it's a dinosaur turd. And, and everybody really likes coprolites because they're just amazing, aren't they? And I went to the back of this, I went to the back of this uh, uh, hut and I saw something I never thought I'd see. And I said to the guy behind the bar, I said, is that for sale? He said, no, it isn't. I said, is it what I think it is? He said, depends what you think it is. And I said, it is, isn't it? And he said, yeah. So for an hour and a half, I negotiated, I haggled, and I left very much the poorer. I had bought a meteorite that big. Now, any of you who've never owned a meteorite <laughs> need to understand how powerful this is. It was a stupid thing to do because I'd forgotten that I was about to get on an aircraft to LAX. So I arrived, I put my, my suitcase through, and as I went through, there was this thing came out on the, on the tannoy saying, uh, would Mr. Smith please come to this particular space? So I went there and these guys said, what's in your case? And he took me into a side room where um, all my underwear was in disarray and there was this box. He said, what's in there? And I said, it's a meteorite. Now, these are tough, hardened guys. You know, they're used to dealing with terrorists. And I opened the box, and I lifted it up, and I handed it to what, the first guy that there. And any of you, well, you've never owned one, have you? But so you, had it, and you think it weighs what the size of it is, so that you take it and you go, bloody hell. It's really heavy. It's compressed nickel and iron. And it took probably a minute for these tough, hardened law enforcement officers to be completely changed as they handed the meteorite one to the other. And I said, do you realize this thing was floating through space before Earth even existed? And they put it back and they say, on your way, sir. Thank you for the privilege. I then arrived at Heathrow and my managing director met me there because I had to go up to Leeds and I thought, I'm not going to take this damn meteorite with me. I said, will you take it down to Cornwall? He phoned me that evening. He said, if I had known what I now know, I would have bought a meteorite too. I said, what happened? He said, well, I got on the Paddington train and I put the bag down on the table and it made such a clunk, the person next to me said, what the hell have you got in there? And he said, I've got a meteorite. And he said, it started a chain of things which meant that every single person except the train driver on the Paddington to Penzance train came and fondled my meteorite. Anyway, so a week later, we had our all staff get together and there's 500 people in the room and I thought, right, as a, as a, as a thing, I'll bring my meteorite with me. And I put it in a rucksack, I went bang, the whole crowd I went quiet and I said, I'm going to hand this amazing meteorite to the person over here. And by the time I finish speaking, I want it back over there. 
Three and a half late, uh, three and a half hours later, I got the meteorite back. It is extraordinary when you touch something that is real and you feel wonder at the notion of how small you are and how amazing the world is, you can be transformed, absolutely transformed. I wanted to tell you that. Now I'm in my pomp. I know what I'm going to tell you now. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about chaos because it's pointless you coming to something called Remix and I just tell you a story of I did this and then I did this and then I did this, isn't it? Because you could have read that. I want to tell you why I did this or in fact how I did this. And in order to do that, you need to know, uh, I know it sounds vain, but you need to know a little bit about me. The first thing is, I learned a lesson years ago, which is that if you want to be successful, the first thing you have to do is to lose your fear of being disliked. It is absolutely crucial you lose your fear of being disliked. It doesn't mean you've got to be a bastard. It just means you've got to know what you want and go to it without fear or favor. The second thing is you've got to believe in last man standing or last woman standing. There is something in the human psyche when people know you won't go away, they will eventually pay you large sums of money to do so. <laughs> the, third thing, um, the third thing that you need to know is if you really, really are creative, as opposed to a ponce who's claiming to be creative, but actually you haven't got creative. I have such a hatred. I can't tell you how much I hate phrases like joined up thinking, out of the box, <laughs> leading edge, cutting edge, bleeding edge, ether thinking, we're gonna be so fucking innovative. And I am a creative, don't you know? <laughs> I have noticed there is an inverse relationship between the use of those words and its present absence. I decided years ago that one of the great problems of being born, like all of us in this room are, is we, lead the conceit, we have the conceit that we are clever, which undoubtedly we are. We were given a gift to be clever, to put thoughts together and ideas together and harness our imaginations, and then we go to sleep. What actually happens is most people I know who are clever are not clever at all. They are asleep, they are passive, they take on the views of other people, they just hope that other people haven't read the smart articles they've read, which they're passing off as being their original thoughts. Most people are dull as ditch water. I mean it. I mean it. You need, and I'm, I'm accusing myself of this as well. This is, not, this is a gang thing, you know. I decided at the age of 18, I was going to start accepting the third invitation. You have no idea what that does to your life. It doesn't mean you don't accept the first, but if you always accept the third, unless it clashes with a domestic obligation, it puts you in the world of chaos and uncontrol. You end up going to things that you would have fought not to go to, but you are there. I have had to judge dog shows. I've opened an old people's home. I have done the craziest things in the craziest places and every time just about something marvelous happens you see foolish people say things like you need to people you need to meet the people you need to meet that's success that's bollocks that is second-rate mediocrity you know the real secret is to meet the people you didn't know you needed to meet that is where magic lies I, 
I'll give you an example. I stay sometimes at the October Gallery off Hoban, which is uh, an ethnic art gallery. And on any night of the week, there may be a Bolivian you know, a potter or a French film director or whatever, and everybody sort of gathers together and they talk. One night, I was going to a black tie dinner. I walked in, they have a courtyard, and there was an American guy having a glass of wine. He said, look, I'm a bit lonely. Would you join me for a glass of wine? I thought, oh, OK, I've got time. So I had a glass of wine, and then that one glass of wine led to another, and then a bottle came out, and I never went to the black tie dinner. But it was absolutely extraordinary. And let me tell you why it was extraordinary. A, we got pissed in very good company. But he told me what he did. I then phoned, I then phoned up um, uh, the head of the Sensory Trust, which is a disability trust based at the Eden Project, and I said, do you know a guy called John Zeisel? And she said, you don't mean the John Zeisel, do you? And I said, are you the John Zeisel? He said, I guess, yeah. I said, yeah. He said, you've got to be kidding. He's a god. He's a god. I've always wanted to meet him. And I said, well, you will. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I've just persuaded him to come down on the sleeper tonight. He's coming down to Cornwall. Now... The following day, I had a lunch with Nick Grimshaw, who was the designer of that, yeah? And Nick had never met John. I thought, oh, crikey. So I invited them both to lunch. I hardly said a word. As John Zeistel, who is the world expert on Alzheimer's disease and its impact on design, decided to give Nick a coaching course in the, 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 the neuroprocesses of design and fabric and materials and the rest of it in perspective, it transformed Nick's life. It changed how his practice now viewed design. But he would never naturally have gone to speak to a professor uh, who specialised in Alzheimer's, would he? And that's magic. I'll give you another example. I was asked in 1997 to go and speak to a dog and 50 people in a Nissan hut outside Taunton. My PA threatened resignation for about the 50th time. I went, and indeed there was a dog and I think slightly less than 50 people, and I told them my story, and I went home. Why are you doing that, said my peer? What a waste of time, and the following day you had to go to London, and it's just, you are an idiot. I said, really? Now, you'll never guess what happened three months later. I am in Plymouth, and it is a meeting of the European Commission to decide how it is going to distribute the millions of pounds that are coming to the West Country the Eden Project was going to get nothing. Then suddenly, this old guy gets up and he says, my name is Humphrey Templey, and I am the chairman of Somerset County Council, and three months ago, I happened to be in a Nissan hut outside Taunton. And I saw, I saw this man speak, and it's quite obvious he has the interest of the wider West Country at heart than just the narrow confines of Cornwall. And I've just spoken to my colleagues, and we in Somerset are prepared to drop two of our projects so that the Eden Project can go ahead, if one of you lot will drop another one. So Devon, looking really embarrassed and sheepish, <laughs> dropped, as I recall, a particularly awful project. And that trip was worth £12.7 million. But it happens time after time after time. So that's one of the ways I lead my life. The other ways I lead my life, because I do like chaos, I really do like chaos, is imagine if you will, you're an archaeologist, you think you've got the best job in the world, but you're earning so little money that you have to do your second favorite thing, which is I was in a rock band at University of Durham. I earned so little, I went to London, because of course here in London the streets are paved with gold. I knew I was going to be a sensation, and ended up immediately on the dole, on £26.80 a week with a young child. Now, 
On weekends, I used to go and play football on Clapham Common outside the Windmill Pub. One day I'm playing football and I kick this chap and he falls over and he's hurt. A chap next to me says, Christ, do you know who you've just hurt? I said, no, who's he? And he said, that's Pat Stately, the lead engineer at Abbey Road Studios in London. I went, hello. I lifted him up. <laughs> and anyway, within a week, I was in Abbey Road Studios in dead time. Now, I want you to listen to this. It was dead time i.e. something that is really, really valuable, wasn't being used, and otherwise, every minute that went by without it being used, it was a loss, wasn't it? And we could use it. And I also realized that some of the best musicians in the world were not working 24 hours a day. And there was spare tape. So from nothing, something is created. Are you aware of how many trillions of pounds, trillions of pounds of assets are frozen in our little nation? in people's garden sheds and garages, in their ability to do things. And we say there's no wealth. So there I was, and I recorded, I recorded, I recorded. Singularly unsuccessfully, I ought to say. We got record deals. And eventually, the, the guy who owned the studio said, you may use it and book it now. Now, I went out for the first night after the birth of my son. The first time we went out, my sister-in-law came around to be a babysitter. She brought a friend because she thought she'd get lonely. I came back, the babysitter said, hello, I understand you're in the music business. I'm an opera singer. Can I give you my card? I went, thanks a lot. I put it in my top pocket. I never thought I'd ever be working with an opera singer any time in my life, ever. I hate opera. The next day, many of you in this audience will find this remarkable. This is in the pre-mobile phone days. I'm in Abbey Road studio, and the singer phones in ill. I phone the only other two singers I know, and it goes ring, 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 there's no one there. I'm still wearing the shirt from the night before. <laughs> the card is in my top pocket. I take it out, I phone her, she comes, and four weeks later, the record we recorded that afternoon is number one in Holland. And a week later, <laughs> no, no, and a week later, it is number one in Belgium. And after that, it went crackers. And we were really successful. We were making money. Do you know what it's like to make money? Do you know what it's like to think you've got ethics and then you've got shed loads of money and think, fuck it, I'll buy a Porsche. <laughs> it, is, it is the most extraordinary thing. And then you realize what a twit you are. And one day, I'm in Paris. I'm staying in the best hotel, the Plaza Athenee, in the best room, the princess suite. The furniture in that suite is worth more than I will ever earn in my life. The limousine comes to pick me up to take me to an award ceremony. I go downstairs and the driver turns the radio on and it's my record. It had been number one for 15 weeks. It was the biggest selling record in French history called Midnight Blue. The record that then is played next is called En Irlande by Michel Thor. It will eventually knock my record off at number one spot. Shame, I'd written that as well. So there I am in the back of this limousine, feeling really swank, and something really weird happens. I started to cry. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. Do you know how lonely it is to achieve what you thought you wanted more than anything? And you have it, and it feels like dust. It feels like nothing. And that night, I decided I was going to move out of the music industry. 
And I did. I eventually found myself in Cornwall, and it was raining, and I went into an estate agent's, and I saw a house for sale. I took it out. The estate agent said, so won't like that. I said, fuck you, I'm going to take that house. And I drove down the road, and I went to this house, and the road then got blocked by a tractor, and a guy got out of the tractor, and he said, what are you doing here, old buck? I said, it's really embarrassing, but I saw this house was for sale, and I want to come and see it secretly to know whether it was interesting. He said, it's my house. He said, why don't you come and have a cup of tea with the wife? So I went and had a cup of tea with the wife, and that night I bought the house. This is crazy. I lived in Brixton. <laughs> anyway. I bought the house, and then the terror. I don't know whether any of you have had this terror where you're going to change your life, but you think you don't you're not good at anything. You were doing something else. It is terrifying, utterly terrifying. And you've now pissed your money up the wall on a, on, a, on a house that is falling down that you fell in love with. How crazy is that? And then, ladies and gentlemen, miracle of miracles, if you lead my life and chaos rules you, you look for signs, you have a deep superstition, and a friend came round, a new friend came round, and he gave me a black pig. It's an unusual gift, I grant you. But this pig was called Horace. And Horace and I became good friends, and he'd come into the house, and he'd warm his ass against the argo, and, and I, I, he really liked me, and I really liked him, and we had good Well, I had good conversations. He didn't talk much, but I realized he was lonely, so I went and found another pig, and I found Doris, and Doris and Horace got it together. I then realized the happiest day of my entire life, and this is true, I know as a man I'm supposed to say it was the day I got married or the birth of my first child, but it's not true. The happiest day of my life was in November 1990 when Horace and Doris gave birth to 13 baby pigs. 2 a.m., horizontal snow, heat lamps, deep snow. It was a deep hay. It was biblical. I knew, as you now know, this was a sign. I needed to have a rare breed park. This is it. <laughs> I went to find some land, and I went to the land where the rare breed park was, or where I was going to build it, and I went to speak to the bloke who owned it. Now, something weird came in. I have very sensitive lips, ladies and gentlemen which you may think is a very weird thing to say to an audience, except it means that when you go for a meeting and someone gives you a bloody hot cup of coffee, if they say no immediately, you're left with a hot coffee. And what do you do? Do you talk? Do you take, go out? It's a rural thing. So we started small talk. And I happened to mention that I was an archaeologist in the past. And the guy said, I have need of an archaeologist, which is the first time I've ever heard that sentence, <laughs> ever. And he said, I've just inherited the estate next door, and I've got absolutely no money at all. But there's an amazing garden and lots of things in there, if you like. So the following day, I went for a garden visit armed with a machete. And my life changed. 45 minutes later, I had decided I was going to take over a lease for the whole estate, and I was going to restore it. And I was going to restore it because I was in love. You see, one of the things I learned in the music industry, probably the only thing I learned of any merit in the music industry, was if you love something, really love it, and you're not a freak, millions of other people will feel the same way. So therefore, the issue is marketing. So I persuaded the BBC to come, and I did the restoration and they, under the full light glare of the BBC. It won lots of awards. It was fantastic. It won these awards, and there was only one mistake in the whole of the documentary, a tiny little detail they forgot to mention we weren't open to the public. So the day after the documentary was shown, coaches started to arrive. In my first year, not open, we had 40,000 visitors came to see. <laughs> The Lost Gardens of Heligan. And people would come in and they say, what the hell's happening here? What are you doing there? And I say, here's a machete, go and find out yourself. The best business model you've ever seen. People pay to come in and then they actually do the work. It was marvelous. I also learned the art of storytelling because storytelling is absolutely everything. And one of the great conceits of adults who have kids is that they think they might be entertaining to other adults who've got kids and especially kids who have parents like you.
They come. I was going to take three classes a day for three days. I was going to tell them about Heligan. The first two days were the worst of my professional life. They hated me. They broke things. They swore. They beat each other up. And on the third morning, I arrived at work. My tummy absolutely tight as a drum. And I suddenly got it. I looked at these little kids, and I thought, fuck you. <laughs> no more Mr. Nice Guy. And I sneered. I'd been practicing a bit. You know that, 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 you know that kind of, like the, I'm a bit too nice now, but I've, I've, I've mellowed. But I sneered at them, and I said, I'm going to tell you about the poisons that will burn through your stomach lining. And you will then drip, drip, drip to death. These kids were mine. I could see they were mine. I didn't notice the alarm on the face of the teachers. That, right? But anyway, I then told them about the drugs invented, invented by the ancient Aztecs to stop live human sacrifices screaming as their still pumping heart was being cut from their chest cavity, ripped out and held out to celebrate the summer solstice. I could have walked those children over coals, ladies and gentlemen. They had never thought of plants as being that interesting. I could have told them about potatoes after that. You see, the really interesting thing is, plants are actually really cool things. The trouble is most of the people who talk about plants are really boring. <laughs> now, the point I'm actually trying to make, where I'm going with all this, is that if the great institutions, and some of you may be in the audience today, if the great institutions of science were even 10% as good as we all claim we are, the world would be different, wouldn't it? There would be no such thing as being an environmentalist because we'd all get it, because we'd understand. We are uniformly crap because we give authority to people who are supposed to know stuff, but we forget that they know stuff, but the reason they're doing all that studying is because they're very crap at talking to people, or else they'd be like you. No, they are not performers. Most science museums I've ever been to, in fact, most museums I've ever been to, are rubbish. I was taken to the Metropolitan Museum by some of the people who'd funded the Egyptian wing, and I completely blotted my copybook. They asked me what I thought. And I said, it's dreadful. And they said, what, why? What do you think is the best bit? Well, I like the Manchester United graffiti in the temple at the back. I thought that was really interesting. It was, a good, it was like a statement about how things never change. You see, the thing was... I've worked in museums. I worked in the Bose Museum in Barnard Castle. What happens is curators start to have kind of fights about who's the cleverer. So they were telling me about Nefertiti and Akhenaten and Tutankhamun and, and Ramses 1, 2 and 3 and so on, as if it bloody mattered. If it's the first time you've been to the Egyptian wing of the Metropolitan Museum, who cares? The fact that the whole of Egyptian archaeology actually doesn't move very much. The only thing most of the people who went to that particular series of rooms would have known was that the Egyptians were big on death. I'm serious. Do you see me laughing? It drives me crazy. Do you know what it's like to climb the biggest tree on earth? I've done it. Since Sequoia and the Sierra Nevadas, right to the top. And you're caressing this tree whose trunk is bigger than from here to there. And it's been there for nearly 4,000 years. That tree. That tree has outlived 43 civilizations full of people like us living then. Each of us were saying, we're, we're going to change the future. And we fucked it every time we fucked it, didn't we? Or else we wouldn't be here with our civilization. And the reason I'm saying this 
is because there is a tremendous temptation that we fall in love with ourselves, a sort of narcissistic thing. We're exhibiting stuff. We're communicating. Are we? There's a lot of transmission, not a lot of questioning about reception, though. And that fascinates me. And it's our obligation. It is actually the obligation of those who are interested in culture to realize, as that famous business correspondent Peter Drucker once said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture is really important. It is so important. And the fact that we feel embarrassed about being in the cultures, if you like, shame on us. We are nothing without it. We are the sum of our stories, and our futures and our hopes come from having a story. I just wanted to take a few moments to talk about our latest remix collaborator, the UK government, who are the series partner for See Things Differently. To celebrate this link-up, over the next few episodes, we're going to be exploring the stories of a number of UK-based innovators. I'm also excited about this collaboration because the first ever Remix Summit took place in the UK in London back in 2014. 300 creatives gathered from sectors such as the arts and technology at Bloomberg's European headquarters in the heart of the city to explore the future of the creative industries, creative cities and the creative economy. Remix was designed to be a platform that would bring together creative thinkers from different industries to connect and develop new ideas. I believe that one way to spark innovation comes from the meeting of diverse minds. I think of these melting pots as the collision economy. They create an environment where you can see things differently. This collision effect is most powerful in locations where there is a large creative ecosystem and talent base in countries such as the UK. For example, did you know that the UK is ranked fourth in the world in the Global Innovation Index? There's over a hundred tech unicorns, that's companies with a valuation over a billion dollars in the UK, which was the third country to pass this milestone. It also ranks number three in terms of venture capital investment globally. If you're interested in finding out more about doing business in the UK, then visit Great gov.uk forward slash remix to find out more. Now back to the show. So for me, doing the Eden Project came out of nowhere, really. I, I, I realized that people were interested in the stories I was telling about plants because no one had ever told those stories like that before. So I decided, wouldn't it be great to take the most poisonous place you could imagine and create life? Wouldn't that be amazing? And then to show how clever Homo Sap Sap is by building these extraordinary things, which for the first time would not be a monument to the vanity of architects, they would be actually great to grow in. But why would you do that? Would you do that because you're going to be like a butterfly collector? We'll have two of these, two of those, two of the others. Who cares? That's the problem. We become obsessive. The issue is we are dependent on the natural world. Without it, we are part of it. We are creaturely. And if you don't understand that, you won't nurture it and you won't treasure it. And we told stories and we raised 144 million pounds in Cornwall. It is ridiculous. What idiot would think of building something that should obviously go to a place like here, London, five hours away from here? Isn't it stupid? Do you know how I had to lie? Do you know I had to tell banks that only 500,000 people would come here? We could still make the business plan work though. 
They believed it, those sops. We've now had 19 million people come since we opened. We have 1.1 million visitors a year. We've put just under two billion pounds of new wealth into the Cornish economy. And that's because we're political. We are intensely political. We insist on local sourcing. We insist on helping the supply chain grow to meet us. Because lots of people who talk about helping business, for example, they say, oh, we'll give a grant here, a grant here. They don't understand business. Most of the people who are doing business aren't helping people wanting to do business. So, for example, if you've got an ice cream guy supplying you and you only give them an order for three months at a time but they need to grow, have more ice cream, they can't borrow the money because they can't guarantee the income. So we give people contracts for 18 months. And people say, that's not very good business. I say, isn't it? It's really good business because a lot of brands in Cornwall now have a national and international platform because of the way we contract ourselves. We manage ourselves in a particular, peculiar way, too. When we opened, the public poured in, and we had all of these youngsters. Excuse me, do you mind if I sit on my ranting? Breathe. Yeah. When the public came in, we weren't quite sure what to do with them. I mean, you know. So we tried to entertain, we had storytelling, we had all that stuff. But as it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, we started to think, um, we've got to put on shows. And they were quite good. Everything was quite good. And everybody kept saying, you're wonderful. Can you see where I'm going here? Go back to my being in a limousine. You fall so quickly in love with everybody thinking you're wonderful. And the truth is, the Eden Project isn't wonderful. It's just that everything else was so crap. <laughs> I'm saying this because we're amongst friends. This is actually a bunch of professional people sharing experience, isn't it? That's what this is about. And it's so easy to fall in love with the myth of who you are. And we're quite good. But when I saw the impact of that meteorite, I realized how far we still had to go to get people to really feel things. Because great theatre, I always say about great theatre, this is a, forgive me for this incredible clunk, but... I used to be a director of Nihai Theatre, for, for, on the board of Nihai Theatre, for 13 years. And I always used to say that well, a great show, there will be five things in it that you remember until the day you die. And I think it'd be really terrific if our museums and our big centres, the director was told, if you have not produced things, that there are at least five things that everybody who leaves here will remember until the day they die, you'll be put to death. <laughs> Don't you think that would concentrate the mind? No more flaming arts council money for you, old son. Just a grave, a cold, unmarked grave, because you were treacherous to knowledge. I'm exaggerating this for effect, of course. Anyway, the Eden Project um, has been a lot of fun. We do a lot of really cool things. We do things like we do Big Lunch, which you may have heard of, uh, around the country, getting people to have lunch together. We have, last year, we had 9.2 million people uh, do lunch together. And we started to now get air under our wings, and we're building three in China. We're doing the creative development of the Expo, main, main building Expo in Dubai. We're doing one in Canada. We're doing one on the docks in Tasmania. All different. And really interesting about China was, they all came, we had seven groups of people that, who wanted to build an Eden project. And I said, look, you know what? Why don't we cut out the middleman? I'll give you the cards of these people who build you a copy. Because that's all you want, isn't it? And they said, why do you hate us so much? And I said, you want gardens by the bay, don't you? A bit of, you know, Eden Project light with a few frills. You know, 
And they said, what are you getting at? I say, go to Singapore and you'll know. If you don't know, you shouldn't work with us anyway. You go to Singapore, you see this amazing construction, it's got no culture. There's nothing about it. Culture is everything, not the structure. Any fool can build a structure that looks as if a city has spent a lot of money to promote itself. It's the culture that matters. So in Hobart, we're doing a project about Antarctica, working with the Australian Antarctic Division. It's really cool. I'm going to do something I've wanted to do since I was a kid. We're going to try and produce the world's first deep water aquarium. And we've met the scientists who can do it, and they've given us the secret of how to do it. It's just wonderful. Wonderful. A donor has just bought the last privately owned grove of sequoias in the Sierra Nevada mountains. 300 trees over three and a half thousand years old. And we want to make that a university in nature. We're working with lots of partners with that. We're going to be working in a town in South Carolina. Extraordinary place it is. Graniteville. If you look it up on the web, you'll go, fuck me. It was amazing. It was destroyed by an explosion of a tanker in 2005 when a train went into a chlorine truck. And it became emptied. And we're going to build a park and do lots of marvelous things there. But the real point, coming back to it, is building shit is easy. It is. Once you've told people, if you want to write something down, the first thing you write down is never again use the word if. Always use when. Humans are really funny. When you've used when for three months, they believe it is almost certain. Honestly, believe me, learn a certain management style. After the first period of time that we were open, Sir Ronnie Hampel, who was my chairman, he came to me and said, Tim, we've got 500 staff. You have got to stop running this place like a gang leader. And I said, well, what should I be doing then? He said, damn it, man. You need some corporate structure, some government, some governance. And I said, what's that? He said, damn it, man. You haven't even got any KPIs. I said, what are they? He then told me what KPIs were, and I then compounded the problem by saying, surely if you're employing adults, you don't give them a list of the things you expect them to achieve in a year, you're working with people who know what they're doing. He then looked at me as only a patrician Englishman can. <laughs> Under beady, beady eyebrows, he said, Tim, if this isn't sorted, one of us will have to leave. I said, Ronnie, I'd be so sorry to see you go. <laughs> I then realized that that wasn't the intention of what he said. I then did something which I think you should all do on a regular basis. I bought myself three very good bottles of red wine. I went home, and over the weekend, I wrote a management manifesto for the Eden Project. Three months later, Unilever came with their entire global board to learn at our feet. <laughs> this went on for a while until Ronnie said, look, you're not a bloody management guru. Could you just get down to normal business now? That's all right. But the rules of business are really interesting, the way I do it, I think. It is rule number one is you're not allowed to start work until you said good morning to at least 20 people, unless you work in an organization that's smaller than that or you're working nights. Number two, you have to read two books a year that everybody that knows you would say was completely outside of your sphere of interest and review them for your colleagues as to why they're great. Rules number three, four, and five, you've got to go see one show, one film, one concert, same rules as number two. How else are you going to become intelligent? How else are you going to see things that you wouldn't otherwise see, as opposed to just preaching your prejudices back to everybody else? 
Rule number six, you've got to make a speech once a year about why you love working here. If you can't do it, you must resign. The reason we have that rule is because if you can't make that speech, you will try and put it right before you have to make the speech, which means that you don't let things fester and fester and fester and fester. Just come out with it. Rule number seven, you've got to prepare a meal for the 40 people who make it worth getting up every day and coming to work. This became a bit of a problem with all those staff. Um, domestic life became a chaos. So now we have honed it down, but we do an awful lot of working by night. You see, the funny thing is, you'll think this is hippie shit, and I don't care. People are different when the sun goes down. People give each other permission to be the complete person when the sun goes down, whereas you're just a working person when the light is up. Almost every major decision we've ever taken at Eden has been made at night. Seriously. And usually, usually led by people whose job it wasn't to be an expert in that area. Just because someone calls you of this as a job does not mean you've suddenly become a dweeb. You will have opinions. Be brave about your opinions because the marketing director could be a twat. <laughs> and because people are trying to market to you all the time, you have a pretty good experience about what works. Yes? You know it's true. Rule number eight. I do not have the comfort of religion, but I am, as you can tell, deeply superstitious. I believe if you have the good fortune to have good fortune and you do not share it with others, you will lose it and it will never return. So the top 80 people in my organization have to do one act of guerrilla goodwill a year. Do something unspeakably nice to someone who doesn't know you and you will never let them know it was you but enjoy watching what happens. Enjoy the pleasure of doing something for someone else. And the last thing we do, everybody has to learn to play samba drums. Now you'd think, oh God, I was wondering when we were going to get that hippie shit. No, the reason for it is samba, as many of you in this room who are slink-hipped will know, is really interesting because it is not a natural rhythm. It becomes a natural swaying rhythm when all these other cross rhythms come across it. So until they're all playing, it's a bit like, yeah? So we get these drum captains, and I've spent a fortune on drums, ladies and gentlemen. Sudos, boom, boom, boom. You know the big ones, yeah? Kabasa, timbales, congas, cowbell. You've not seen anything like it. It's absolutely amazing. For like half a morning, you've got all these people learning, you know, boom, 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 whatever it is. Then they all come into a big room, and you should see them. They're British. They are nervous. We don't perform. Oh, no. So the Sudu captain goes, ha! And they start going, dunk, 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 dunk. You can see them. Their faces, absolute rictus. The veins on their arms are up like this. Please don't look at me. Don't look at me. This is awful. I would rather be drilling my teeth without anesthetic. Uh, yeah. And then in come the cabasas. Then come, come. When the timbales come in, the most extraordinary thing happens. You see those guys who were stiff like this. Suddenly, their little asses start to wiggle. It's funky. And then suddenly, when the last of the rhythms goes in, to watch 500 Brits go crackers, as he crackers, is marvelous. But you know why it is marvellous? It is marvellous because only by working with so many people can you get that feeling. And it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And you realise it's flaming cool to be homo sap sap. And it makes you feel really optimistic. And it gives you the sense of hope and that all things are possible. That is why I want to end by saying, 
I feel I always have to say this. I hate the Daily Mail. <laughs> but do you know why? No, 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 no. Do you know why? Neil Young once wrote a great album with the best title of any album I've ever heard of called Rust Never Sleeps. And the problem, I rather unfairly just singled out the Daily Mail, is that the fourth estate and the fifth estate, who both have the mantra that if it bleeds, it leads, means we only ever hear the things that go wrong. We only hear of the child that gets murdered, not the 10,000 that weren't. We only hear about the hospital that is infested with cockroaches, never the ones that aren't. And you know what that does? It corrodes our public life. It corrodes our feeling of what it is to be a citizen in the noble estate that we are in. We're living, ladies and gentlemen, the last thing, I promise, we're living at a time of such excitement. We're living at a time that has never, ever been this good. With scientific, I could go on all night about where we are in terms of understanding the human microbiome and in terms of understanding soil and how they're all one and how that what's coming towards us, like a runaway train, is the most extraordinary moment of transformation. It really is. So please promise me, if you only promise to remember one thing about my talk, it is to treat those who would paint the world as doomed and us being without hope, ignore them. They're negative, and negative people are like a cancer and should be stamped out. Thank you. So thanks for staying with us, and that's a wrap for this episode. Another great guest will follow in our next edition. I'm Peter Tullen, and if you like what you hear, there are literally hundreds more talks from Remix events all around the globe at remixsummits.com. And as mentioned, many of them are free. If you want to support Remix, then you can subscribe to access all of our latest and upcoming talks from Remix events. And if you're in Australia, our next Remix Summit takes place in Sydney on the 8th to 9th of March. Thanks for joining us.